All right, so <clears throat> this is a bit loud. Thanks. I don't want to blow your ears off. Um, okay, this is the point in our journey through Acts where we reach Athens. Um, Athens has got all of our attention for the wrong reasons just now, doesn't it? Kind of sovereign debt crisis, all of that kind of stuff. But actually, Athens deserves our attention, uh, not just for that reason. It's because it's one of the most significant cities in the story of world history. I don't know whether you're familiar with this whole thing, but in the 6th century BC, so around about the time when the Jews were getting uh, exiled from Jerusalem uh, by the Babylonians, um, the Greek civilization came to this amazing flowering of maturity in Athens. That civilization was really kind of like the birthplace of everything that we call civilization today. Uh, Athens was the first place in the world that had a properly functioning democracy. Um, Athens was a city of art and culture. Um, They were pioneers in education uh, and science and philosophy and architecture and literature. Uh, Their writers penned some of those amazing plays, some of the most amazing poems that have ever been written. Um, Their artists made miraculous sculptures, amazing objects, which kind of still dazzle us by their technical skill, but also just the artistry, the beauty of these things. So I thought I'd just give you a bit of a tour um, so that we can get our heads around Athens and what it was like. Um, Thanks, Tim. Um, So just first of all, you know that we're working our way through this second missionary journey, and we are kind of here now. So that's Athens. And Paul has been working his way down uh, from Berea, where we were last time. Um, And when he got there, this is what he would have seen. Um, So this is the center of ancient Athens. That hill in the middle is called the Acropolis. Um, And sat on top of it is one of the most famous buildings in the world, the Parthenon, um, which is a uh, temple devoted to the Greek goddess Athena, which should be on the screen. Come on. (laughs) Woo! Check it out. Okay, that's the Parthenon. And inside there was this amazing statue of Athena, um, the uh, the god uh, after whom the, uh, the city of Athens is named. Um, If you just swing around kind of to the left of that first image that I showed you, and you're now looking at the back of the Acropolis, what you can see here, so this is the the hill with the Parthenon on it. There's another little hill over here, and that's called Mars Hill. And Mars Hill was the uh, hill on which the Greeks had their Senate buildings, which were known as the Areopagus. So that's the place from which uh, the Greek state was governed. Okay. So this is what the Areopagus looks like today, the top of Mars Hill. It's kind of just a rock. Um, It used to be covered in beautiful buildings, and that's the place where the Greek Greek government held their council. And then just some of the amazing art. I can't resist showing you this because it gives me just a thrill to show it. This is Myron's um, amazing sculpture, the discus thrower. Um, Questionable whether anything finer representing the human physique has ever been created. Um, This is the Laocoon. Again, just amazing ambition that these sculptors have. This is this sculpture of three people wrestling with snakes. No one's still got any real idea how they achieved it. This is the Venus de Milo, who we'll probably be familiar with. Some of you probably got the T-shirt with that image on it. And then just more of their art objects. Um, Amazing porcelain and stuff that they did. And it's still having an impact on us, talking of amazing art objects. Um, (laughs) um, Here's Brad Pitt. Um, still showing that Greek culture has got its uh, grip on us. Uh, 
The story of Troy is actually um, a, a film reworking of Homer's Iliad, which was written in eighth, the 8th century BC. And those are the founding myths of the Greek state. And still we see it's still got a grip on us now. All right, so that's Athens. That's where we're going to be in our passage. Um, we can see that it was an amazing city of art and culture, as I said. But also we shouldn't neglect the fact that in the 4th century, uh, they also ruled most of the known world. Uh, so it wasn't just galleries and philosophy. It was actually hardcore uh, going out there and uh, seizing power. Alexander the Great, the Greek king, stretched Greek rule all the way to the borders of India. Now, our story today is set a little bit later than all of that. Uh, we're dropping in in AD 50, so about 500 years after the Golden Age of Greece. Um, and by that time, Greek uh, culture wasn't uh, the center of an empire anymore because the Romans were in charge. But it didn't mean that Athens was on the downswing um, because, interestingly, the Romans didn't seek to destroy what they saw in Greece. They just wanted to try to mimic it. And so they built their whole religious structure and the, everything that they did in terms of education and philosophy in emulation of the Greeks because so they thought it was so great. So what you find here in this city of Athens is really the, um, the source, the place that even the Roman Empire was looking to for cultural and intellectual inspiration. So it's an amazing center point uh, in this whole uh, piece of the ancient world. So what we're going to do, we're going to read our passage. This is the, the day that Paul arrived there, and we're going to find out what happened. It's Acts 17, and we're going to start reading at verse 16, and I'll read it through to verse 34. So will you stand with me to find out what happened? And let's come to this with expectation. God has got amazing things for us in this text. So Paul, as you'll remember, was up in Berea with uh, Silas and Timothy, and he kind of gets smuggled out of the city and packed off down to Athens. And then we read this. While Paul was waiting for Silas and Timothy in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. 
as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we're God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Okay, so take your seats. We're going to have a go marching our way through this this morning. So we know, don't we, this from our last passage, Paul has arrived in Athens not quite the way that he intended to, uh, because he was rescued probably from being uh, uh, stoned again in Berea by the Christians uh, in that city. They, they bundled him up and smuggled him off to Athens. And suddenly he finds himself in this city, and for the first time in all of these missionary journeys, he finds himself alone. Um, because Paul has been traveling so far with other people. He traveled with Barnabas on the first missionary journey, and then with Silas and Timothy so far on the second journey, but now he's on his own. And the temptation would be to take a break, don't you think? You know, here you are in this amazing city of culture. Wouldn't be the temptation be to kind of hit the tourist trail? Um, <laughs> um, and if we see maybe evangelism as Paul's job, you know, the thing that he was employed to do, then maybe that would make some sense. But if we do see it that way, we've really missed Paul's heart. Because the point is, Paul really believed the stuff that he was teaching. And his heart was being kind of transformed into a mirror of God's heart. So when he came to this place that was so lost, where there were people all over the city who were made in God's image, but had no idea that God even existed, his heart was absolutely broken by that. And he couldn't help but do something about it. It reminds me of a couple of texts. Um, You remember Jesus when he's just about to feed the 5,000. And it says that when he landed in the boat and saw the crowd... Uh, Even though he was tired, he probably could have done with a vacation. Uh, We're told that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Or it reminds me as well, do you remember that passage in Jonah uh, where God sends Jonah to the people of Nineveh? And he says, should I not have concern for that great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who, spiritually speaking at least, don't know their right hand from their left? So that's Paul's heart. The passage tells us that he was greatly distressed. Um, And that's striking language. That word is only used one other place in the New Testament, and it's incredibly strong. It means angry, provoked. He was really upset by what he saw there. And the passage tells us why. It's because he saw that the city was full of idols. So the first question we might ask is, what exactly was it that, that he saw? You know, if we go to a modern museum and go and look in the Greek section... You know, it doesn't strike us that we should be angry or provoked. So was there some kind of extra layer of paganism that Paul saw that didn't make it through into our world? Well, no. He saw exactly what we see. He saw the discus thrower. He saw those wonderful objects of porcelain and stone. Uh, But he saw what they represented because these things were images. These things were ways for people to connect uh, to the gods that they believe were beyond them. All right. So if we're going to understand Paul's reaction to this city, 
And if we're going to understand the sermon that he goes on to preach, we need to understand what's going on here with the idolatry of the Greeks and understanding what that word idolatry really means. Um, If we go to our Old Testaments, the place where we'll first see that really flashed out is in the Ten Commandments. Um, You know, the Israelites gather at Mount Sinai after they've been rescued from Egypt. And um, it's striking that they don't really know that much about God before then. Um, They know that the God who's rescued them from Egypt is the God of their forefathers. So they know the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Um, uh, They know that God is faithful because God promised to bring them up out of Egypt. And after 400 years, he did it. Um, They know that God is profoundly dangerous um, because they've just seen what he's done to Pharaoh. um, And they can see the thunder over the mountain. But beyond that, they don't really know much about him. And so Mount Sinai is the place where we find out the primary information about God. And if you look at the first two things that God says, they are these, the first two commandments. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And then number two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, like any Bible passage, if we're going to understand this well, we've got to try and understand the context that it was spoken in and also the people who it was spoken to. And the context tells us that there's a difference between these two things, doesn't it? Why would God say these first two commandments if they're really only one? If it's really just saying, hey, have no other gods, why does he then bother to go on and have a second commandment? The two things are clearly related. Uh, They're both warning us about the danger of idolatry. But God has kept these two things apart because they're not absolutely the same. God wants us to be aware that there are two quite different things that go go on in our hearts when we wander away from him to worship other things. So we're just going to spend quite a bit of time at the start this morning trying to understand this difference because it's crucial to understanding what's going on in Athens. The first commandment is about worshipping other gods. And that idea of a god conveys the whole idea of something that's ultimate, the most important thing in your life. The story of the Bible is full of examples about how we find other things to put in God's place in that ultimate role. We had it recently with Jacob, didn't we? Um, You know, the Jacob and Rachel story. Uh, Rachel became Jacob's ultimate thing. And it wasn't as if, you know, it started off all that bad. It wasn't a bad idea for him to fall in love with Rachel necessarily. But it became a bad thing really quickly when she became his complete obsession. And when he started to load up that relationship with the idea that if he could only get her, that all of his other problems would disappear and that his pain would go away and that he would become complete. When he did that, she became the one thing in his life that he felt he had to have. She became his God. She became his ultimate thing. We see the same thing uh, later on in the story with King Saul. Do you remember that story Uh, where Saul makes the praise of his people his ultimate thing? And maybe that didn't start in such a bad way, you know, when his people were joining with him, praising God for all the good things that God has done done for them and the way that he had rescued them in battles. Uh, But very quickly, it became, again, Saul's ultimate to the point where he was absolutely committed to doing that above anything else. And he would disobey God. He even tried to kill David in order to retain uh, that acclaim of his people. So that's what an ultimate thing is. 
and I hope that we can kind of relate to that. Uh, an ultimate thing is the kind of thing that we wake up thinking about. You know, you wake up in the morning, first thing through your head, often it's your ultimate thing. Our ultimate things are the things that our minds shift to when they're kind of in neutral. You know, when you're standing under the shower and you catch yourself just kind of idly speculating about something. That often that's your ultimate thing. And it's a shame, isn't it? When I do that, I often think, oh, I, you know, I really hope people like me or something like that. And I think, oh, goodness me, is that my ultimate thing? That people should like me? Really easy to get there. It's the subject of our hopes for the future. An ultimate thing is the kind of thing that we spend the money on that we can't really afford. It's the thing that we look to to give us confidence. And anything that's fulfilling that role in your life is your ultimate. I know that I can really relate to that. You know, I can relate to where Jacob was as a young man, you know, making relationships my ultimate thing. I think it's very easy for it to, to be, to kind of, you can suddenly find yourself snapping into that. You know, one day you can just be walking along, living the Christian life, and then suddenly something changes Something catches your eye or some possession that you suddenly think that you most desperately need in order to be satisfied. And immediately you've got ultimate commitment going somewhere else uh, and your mind is just ensnared by that thing. Well, that's first commandment, idolatry. And the Bible gives us this warning against it, not just to kind of make life difficult for us, but because first commandment idolatry is bad news. This first commandment is a flat-out declaration of the fact that however easy we find it to worship other things, we will never know peace or wholeness if we have anything in our lives that's more important to us than God. That's kind of in our maker's instructions. Warning. If you put any other batteries in this object other than the ones labeled the God of the Bible, you're in trouble. God has made us for himself, you know, that Augustine quote, and our hearts will always be restless till they find their rest in him. So that's the first commandment. But the second commandment is slightly different. The second commandment is about making images. And again, we've got to understand that in the light of the context and in the light of the world out of which these Jews who were hearing this came. Um, You see, these uh, Jews, although we, we kind of picture them as the nation of Israel with all of their history and everything, at this stage, they weren't really like that. They had spent the last 400 years in Egypt Every single one of them had spent their their upbringing, their entire adult lives up to about a month before what happened in Mount Sinai, living in Egypt, breathing in Egypt. So it wasn't exactly like growing up in West Michigan. You know, the Egyptians were animists. It was a very strange religious environment. The Egyptians didn't believe that there was any distinction between the physical world and the spiritual world. They believed that objects could have spiritual power. So it was a bit like um, maybe some of the African traditional tribal religions that we see or or voodoo in Haiti. Um, You know the thing uh, where you believe that by making an image of something or someone, you are then able to gain control by the fact that this image looks like the thing it represents. You then gain some kind of control over the thing that it represents. That's the, the way a voodoo doll is supposed to work, isn't it? You make this little doll, it looks like the person who's your target. And then by injuring the doll, then the idea is that you inflict pain or assert control over the person that it's there to represent. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? Um, 
But that's what the Egyptians were doing. And you can see that, you know, when you look at Tutankhamun's tomb, we're all familiar with that. We see those art objects, and that's what we think of them as being, touring the world, going to different galleries and so on. Um, But actually, there was a lot more to what was going on, the objects that they placed in his tomb, than just creating pretty pieces of art. You know, we know that because um, the one that strikes me is the boat that they found in his tomb, this little model boat. And uh, it's easy to think of that. Maybe, okay, Tutankhamun was just a boy when he died. So maybe that was one of his favorite toys. That's a nice kind of answer from our culture. But actually what's going on there is that the Egyptians believed that after death, uh, these Egyptian kings had to cross over the river Styx into the afterlife. And so they put that boat there because by making a model of it, they thought that they were able to get control over the real boat that would take Tutankhamun Uh, into the afterlife, and that they would be able to force the hands of the gods who controlled it and secure his journey onwards. Now, all this may sound a little bit weird to us now, because we think we're kind of too sophisticated for this connection between images and the things that they represent, don't we? But I'm going to try and prove you wrong, and that's what this flip chart is here for. So let's give this a try. Okay. So I'm going to draw some things on here and see whether we feel any spiritual connection to them. Um, So here's a circle. Anyone feel anything yet? (laughs) Any spiritual connection to my circle here? I'm going to... How did that feel? Okay. All right. Let's try another one. Um, Square. Anyone really kind of into squares? Feel that it represents anything for you? Um, Okay. See how this goes. Anyone feel anything? Okay, right. It's not going so well so far. Okay, now let's try something different. Okay. Give this guy a nice comb over here. Um... Okay, couple on their wedding day. Could be you. That doesn't feel so good, does it? So imagine if I'd taken actually maybe a photograph of you, drawn a moustache on your face, hung a noose around your neck. It's not good, is it? And there's a reason for that. It's because we still feel that connection inside us. So that's the phenomenon that the second commandment is there to address. The second commandment is warning us that that part of us is still really essential to what it's like to be a human. It's warning us that we feel a connection between images and the things that they represent. And it's telling us, that, strange though it might seem, that we are going to feel tempted in life to make connections or or try to gain control over the things that these images represent, whether they're the things that we most desperately fear or the things that we most desperately want. There's something inside us that wants to control that kind of thing by visualizing it, that second commandment, idolatry. And just like the first commandment, I think that we actually do this all the time, even though maybe we're less aware of it. Um, 
you probably all know that before I um, became a pastor, I used to work as a designer. And um, I remember one project that our firm did was working with this financial services company. And we were trying to figure out ways to improve the experience of saving for retirement. And so what you would do is you would uh, kind of go and speak to people who had retirement savings and ask them to explain how they would like to see it improved. And actually, it turns out to be an incredibly unfulfilling experience because most people just don't know what to say because they don't understand their retirement savings at all. That's me. Um, (laughs) And then other people know far, far too much to say, and they're almost worse because they know all the technical details and they start pulling out these pie charts. So we found all of this very uninspiring and decided that the right thing to do was to go at it a different way. And so instead of asking people to talk about their retirement savings, we asked them instead to draw them. We asked people to draw on a piece of paper the images that went through their mind when they thought about their retirement plan. Now, the really interesting thing about that is that no one drew a great big pile of money. And that's all it is. That's all your retirement savings are. What people drew were images of the things that they thought their retirement savings were enabling them to control. So some people drew pictures of holidays or nice cars or boats. Some people drew pictures of hospitals or retirement communities. But the striking thing was that everyone had an image in their mind about what they wanted their retirement plan to control, whether it was something that they most desperately wanted or something that they most desperately feared. Their retirement plan was like a little image of it, just there to try and keep all of that stuff in a box and make sure that everything worked out okay in the end. And that's second commandment idolatry, right there. I'm not trying to say that retirement savings in and of themselves are bad. The Bible tells us that we've got to be responsible with our money, tells us to try to avoid being a burden on other people if we can. But as soon as we start to think about our retirement plan as a way to get control over the unknowns of the future, we're in trouble. God's told us not to go there, again, not because he's trying to put arbitrary obstacles in our way to make life difficult. He's told us not to go there because he loves us, and he knows that if we do that, we are going to get hurt. Because no matter how buttoned down our plan for retirement is, or whatever it is, it cannot deliver the control that it promises. I don't care how much money you've put away in your retirement account. If you were diagnosed with terminal cancer on the day that you finish work, your retirement will not be what you planned it to be. I don't care how much money you've put in your retirement account. If on the day that you leave work, one of your children gets a divorce and they have to come back and live at home with your grandchildren, that's not going to give you the retirement that you planned, however much you saved. Your retirement savings cannot deliver the control over the future that they think or that they promise they will. And that's the reason why God is so concerned that we should be aware of this risk. And it's not just money. So our physical appearance can be just like this, can't it? That's an image that we dress up very carefully in the mirror uh, and in our minds. And often we're doing that because we believe somewhere deep down inside us, just like this, that it's giving us some control over the things that we most desperately need or the things that we most desperately fear. So we think that maybe it's going to give us control over the risk that we won't find a partner. Or maybe it's going to give us control over some kind of upcoming business deal where we feel we need to impress. Or maybe we feel it's going to give us control over the aging process and maybe actually prevent it ever happening. And if that's what we're doing, it's second commandment idolatry. And the terrible truth with that, just like retirement savings, is that it just can't deliver the promise that it's making to us. 
looking good, keeping physically fit cannot guarantee uh, the things that we desire. It can't prevent the things that we fear. It's just not strong enough to do it. And old people's homes and hospice wards all over the country are proof of this fact, where you'll find people desperately clinging on, trying to find new things to trust in place of the thing that they have trusted all their lives, which has now just crumbled into ashes in front of them. So that's the difference. The first commandment is about having other gods. And the second commandment warns us about making images. And it's true the two things overlap. So a god can be expressed as an image. An image can very easily become our god. But here's the difference. A god is something which it is by definition our ultimate thing. But an image doesn't have to be. We can have lots of images going at the same time. It's just anything that we're using to try and gain control over the things that we most desperately want or the things that we most desperately fear. So now let's take all of this to Athens. Paul definitely saw both of these two things in the city. He saw first commandment idolatry and he saw second commandment idolatry. But I think the most important problem was the second of those two things. Because you see, the text said the city was full of idols, that it had many altars. And many altars means second commandment idolatry, doesn't it? By definition, you can only have one ultimate thing in your life, but you can have many, many images. And that's actually what broke Paul's heart there. Because when he arrived in that city that was full of idols, he smelt slavery. Because that's what second commandment idolatry does. It's a really, really bad master. Because the images that we make in our lives don't have to be ultimate. Uh, They can just multiply like a disease. We trust one image, hoping that it's going to give us the control over the future that we uh, are hoping for, and it collapses. It doesn't deliver. And what do we do? We move on to the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, and we can suddenly find that our hearts are like a kind of microcosm of what the city of Athens was in macrocosm. They're a city full of idols. We're infested with these things. Each one of them with given a different job of trying to control the complete picture of our fears or our hopes. Every one of them demanding worship, none of them delivering, but all of us, all of them keeping on sucking us back for more. And Paul knew that that's not what people were made for. I want to make sure that I'm able to say this because this is the really important bit, so listen up. You see, there's a very important and striking biblical reason why God has told us not to make images of the things that we think hold the keys to our ultimate satisfaction. God made us to be his image. God made us to be the image of the thing that holds the key to our ultimate satisfaction. We weren't created to try to be God and try and control the future ourselves. We were created to be God's children depending on his ability to control the future and to reflect his character to the world. God made us to hand over our deepest needs and our deepest fears to him. He made us to surrender, to discover that when we surrender, he has got our best interests at heart. He made us to be at peace, leaving the future in his hands. He intended us to live in the confidence of knowing that whatever comes, it will be for our best because it's coming from him. And that's why second commandment idolatry has such a devastating effect 
on human existence. Because when we put our confidence in man-made images, do you see that we're giving away part of ourselves, something that we need in order to really be fully human? We're not supposed to be making images. We're supposed to be the image. When we make an image, then we're diminishing ourselves. We're pushing off and kind of amputating from ourselves something which is essential to what we're supposed to be. Will Weatherhead gave me just this great verse from Two Kings this week, which really captures this. Um, it says that the Israelites followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. When we put our confidence in an image, we're doing kind of the equivalent to what someone does who's addicted to a drug. Um, you know, a drug addict is familiar with passing out pieces of themselves to the substance on which they depend. So maybe something that's really essential to themselves, their own self-confidence, or their ability to be dependable and reliable to other people. And they pass that out and give that to the substance. And the result of that is that they no longer have that essential ingredient of their own self left. They don't have self-confidence. The substance has that now. They don't have dependability. The substance has that now. And when we trust in our looks and our finances or our education or whatever else, to defend us against the risks that we see ahead. We're doing that same thing. We're fracturing ourselves on the inside. We're denying ourselves the inbuilt responsibility to show that it's God who defends us against the risks that we see ahead. We're passing out pieces of ourselves to places that they just don't belong. And only the gospel can bring us back together. See, to be known by God, to be rescued by God, is to be healed and restored from that. It may feel massively challenging to us to surrender and just to give up our attempt to control the risks of the future, to give up our attempt to hold down and pin down these things that we fear the most or that we desire the most. It feels hard to us to just give over the control into God's hands, but ultimately that is faith, and that way lies completeness. We will never be more at rest than when we lay everything down at his feet. Okay, so that brings us now right into the sermon that Paul preached in Athens. The, the first thing that should strike us about it is just the way that the setting and the people that he's speaking to are so different from anything else that we've seen earlier in the book of Acts. Um, you'll remember in Thessalonica and Berea, Paul is talking to a bunch of uh, uh, very orthodox Jews who take... Uh, Uh, the Old Testament as their start point. That's not what we have here. It couldn't be more different. Um, Paul is now kind of in the grand central station of pagan philosophy. Um, And even after all these years, if you had to pick one place on earth that really epitomizes self-confident, independent, human intellectual achievement, you'd probably still pick Athens because that's where so much of this stuff began. And here Paul finds himself not just kind of having a, like a, a debate over a glass with um, some uh, armchair scholars. Um, what Paul's doing here is really like stepping into the university uh, common room for philosophy at Harvard or um, uh, at Oxford. He's right in there with the hardcore philosophers of his time. Uh, you can imagine kind of picking a fight with some of these guys about whether Christianity is or isn't really true. Well, that's what Paul has got himself into. And Luke tells us about two specific groups that he met there. Did you spot those? One of them is called, were, uh, were called the Epicureans. Uh, we would probably call them materialists today because they were people who believed that what you see is all there is, uh, that there isn't anything, there is no divine intervention, there is no God up above the world 
everything that we can see is all that there is. Um, now, of course, we know um, these Epicureans, these, kind of, these atheists who believe that uh, the physical world was uh, the only thing that really existed. We know that the Bible has a bit of a shock for them because the Bible, we know, says you can't really be an atheist. You know, that bump, bumper sticker that I've always kind of sneered at before, which says, you know, uh, atheists don't believe in God. God doesn't believe in atheists either. Um, but actually, there's, there's kind of a, a truth in that, isn't there? Because now we know what we know about the first commandment. We know that everyone has a God. You can't stop yourself making something your most important thing. And that's what a God is, according to the Bible. It doesn't have to be more spiritual than that. We provide all the spiritual stuff just from within our own hearts. So these Epicureans did have a God. It was just a very earthy kind of God. Uh, Their God was pleasure. Um, So uh, they tried to organize their lives in such a way that would give them uh, what they thought pleasure consisted of, which for these guys, it wasn't terribly, uh, you know, uh, over the top. The Epicureans were all about being at peace, uh, living modestly, trying to avoid pain. The second group of people that Paul spoke to were Stoics, and these might be more familiar to us. We still kind of, we would use that as part of our vocabulary now. Someone has a Stoical attitude to something. And the Stoics uh, were like the Epicureans. They had an ultimate, and their ultimate was virtue. So the Stoics believed that you should do the right thing just for the sake of doing it, not because of anything that you're going to get out of it. They were all about self-control, gritting it out, keeping just this even temper, you know, whether you're in disaster or whether you're on the mountaintop. And the place where uh, these philosophers ultimately take Paul to have their debate is almost like philosophy HQ. So we saw this at the start, didn't we? That rock, the Areopagus. Um, and that used to be in the golden age of Greece, their Senate. But under Roman rule, they turned it into this place to give the Greeks freedom to really do what the Greeks did best, which was just to get all of their greatest and finest minds together to debate what were the beneficial and useful philosophical and religious and educational ideas. So they brought Paul into this forum to find out what it was he had to say. And in verse 22, we get his intro. Paul stands up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he says, well, I wonder what you would have, how you would have drafted that, given what we have done in introduction. My temptation would have been for him to say, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very idolatrous. That would make sense, wouldn't it? But look at the word that he actually chooses to summarize what's going on in this city. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Striking. I was going to have some fun with us um, starting this morning. I was going to try and persuade you all that St. Paul actually had a, uh, a twin brother called Minneapolis. You can imagine Minneapolis and St. Paul the twins. And um, that um, Minneapolis would have played a really big part in the, in the New Testament if um, he hadn't been cryogenically frozen in the first century. Um, and the thing which is really cool is that he's just been defrosted here in Grand Rapids in the 21st century. And uh, after he got over his jet lag or cryo lag or whatever you have after being asleep for 2,000 years, um, he was taken out for a tour of the city and then interviewed by M. Live. And M. Live said, um, hey, Minneapolis, what do you think? And he said, people of Grand Rapids, I see that in every way you are very religious. And he'd be right, wouldn't he? Grand Rapids is a pretty religious town. But don't you think he also might be hinting what his brother, St. Paul, was hinting? In Athens? Because it's true there's a lot of religion in our town, but there's also a lot of slavery mixed in with it, don't you think? 
isn't a lot of what we call religion here, maybe even in our own lives, really image-making, just capturing our deepest needs or our deepest fears in a nice little box that we believe that we can control. So anyway, that's where Paul chooses to start. And he's got his tactics worked out pretty clearly. His goal here is going to be to try and shake these uh, Athenians up and surprise them a little bit. You know, we all know that the Greeks had tons of gods, each with lots of different jobs. And because Athens was the center point, Athens was the city where all of these gods had to have an altar. So Paul had been able to do a tour and he walked through the city. Uh, We can see from the text that he'd seen all these different altars. And on his way along, he'd found this little altar to an unknown god. And we know, and Paul knew, that this altar was kind of an afterthought. Uh, You know, this was a way of saying, hey, I think we've got all the major bases covered here, but just in case, just in case there's anyone or anything out there that deserves our worship that we haven't thought of, we've put this altar here just to cover that base. It's kind of like a religious disclaimer clause, you know, like one of those things that you see at the bottom of a food packet. You know, you can't blame us if anything goes wrong because we forgot this. Look, here it is. We've got the unknown God. And it's got control written all over that still, hasn't it? You know, the Greeks didn't really want to devote themselves to this unknown God. They just wanted to mitigate the risk that when their future came along, that what they were trying to control wouldn't be thrown into chaos by failure to have covered that base. So anyway, Paul uses his sermon, um, or uses that to start his sermon and his goal is basically to, to flip their thinking over. He's going to start with that tiny speck on the religious landscape. And you can imagine this altar to an unknown God would be a tiny little thing. And you've got the Parthenon up on the hill. It's pretty clear what's big and what's small. Paul's going to flip that right over. He's going to try and show them that the thing that they think is really small, the unknown God, is actually everything there is. And he's going to try them to show them that the thing that they think is really big, that it's zero. It's nothing. Here's how he does it. He's going to use pretty much the same framework that I laid out for you last time, those bullet points. Um, He's going to start exactly where we started, trying to help his audience see that it's rational to believe in the kind of God that the Bible describes. And he's bold in the way that he does it. He just begins just by knocking off the table a whole bunch of alternative types of God who aren't like the God of the Bible. He says he's not interested in gods who are restricted to temples, because all they are is lumps of stone and gold made by human beings. He says he isn't interested in gods who need our service because they haven't got any power to achieve anything without human help. And so they can't be more powerful than human beings if that's true. Paul doesn't think that any of those gods are worth our time because he doesn't think they're consistent with what we intuitively know about the God who exists. And we can see that Paul's really done his homework here. If you go down to verse 28, the two little quotes that you find there are quotes from Greek classical poetry. So he's going into these experts on the Areopagus, and he's basically saying to them, look, even your best thinkers realize that God has to be more than just these images that you're throwing out all over the city. And if we want to go looking for the God who really exists, we have to do uh, something similar to Paul here. We have to pay attention to this intuition inside us that God is beyond us, that he is the place that we come from and that he's not some creation, some projection of our own needs that comes from us. And that, of course, is what Paul says the God of the Bible is all about. Paul says the God of the Bible looks at temples and altars and human attempts to serve him and he says, 
I don't need that. No thanks. And so in one fell swoop, he just blows away the whole apparatus of idolatry. There's no point trying to control a God who doesn't need anything that we can ever give him, is there? There's no negotiating position there. There's no kind of point where you can insert the pry bar with a God like that. The God that Paul is describing made everything that exists, including us. He can't be manipulated by us or worked out by us, however hard we try. We can't control him. In fact, Paul says exactly the opposite. Paul's pretty bold. He says he controls us. He controls you. He marks out each person's appointed times and the boundary lives within which their lives play out. And if we think that we can work a God like this out, Paul has got the same argument that we used last time. We're like a little worm poking its head up above the surface of the earth and seeing a human being going past and saying, oh, I think I can work out what's going on in your head. No, it can't. You know, a human is just way further up the food chain in terms of intellectual abilities. A worm has no idea what it is that motivates us. And similarly, we have no idea what motivates uh, the kind of God who actually exists if he is what Paul describes unless he reveals himself to us. And that's exactly his point. That's the second bullet point that we covered last time. This kind of God has to take the initiative in communication. He really must reach out and reveal himself to us in terms that we can understand because we're not capable of defining him or critiquing him or working him out unaided. And that, says Paul, is exactly what has really happened. So you see that in verse 27. Paul tells us that God created the world and has given us life and breath as creatures within it with the deliberate intention that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. See, Paul believes that our experience of living in the world is communication from God. He says that we've not been left on our own to work him out. God has organized the world in such a way that it communicates his existence to us in a language that we can understand. Now, I think it's probably worth just pausing here a minute and just thinking whether this really makes sense. I can't help hearing the voice of my dad in the back of my head when I read these words, he is not far from any one of us. Because this is my dad's whole problem with Christianity. He would say that this is just flat out wrong. My dad doesn't think that God is making much of an effort to communicate himself, or at least if he does, uh, if God is doing that, he doesn't think it's very effective. He looks at all the suffering and the injustice in the world and says, Well, that seems to me to be a conclusive argument for the fact that God isn't there. And there are lots of other people who think that, lots of people that we know. Um, Richard Dawkins is a great kind of proponent of that view. There's an amazing quote in one of his books where he says this, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So what do we do with this? Well, I think there's a really good reason for coming in behind Paul and believing what he said. The first thing that we've got to do here is just ask whether suffering and injustice in the world really do tell us that God doesn't exist. It's certainly one way to read it. We can see the point of the people who believe that. But the Bible's perspective is actually very, very different. See, the Bible tells us that since the fall, the world that we're living in is what you might call a judicial environment. Living in the world is like being sentenced to community service, 
this uh, an environment in which you're living out uh, the error of your ways. You're experiencing uh, what the consequences of your actions really look like. The truth is, according to the Bible, we have said to God that we want to be God ourselves. And God is letting us see the consequences of that. We've said we don't want him involved. And so now we're seeing what it's like to not have God involved. So it kind of makes sense that it's hard to figure him out. And suffering and injustice are part of those consequences that we've brought down on us. So it's no good us saying that suffering and injustice prove that God doesn't exist. That would be rather like me sending my eldest daughter to her bedroom for misbehavior. And then while she's sitting up in her bedroom, uh, suffering, not enjoying the fact that she's far away from the rest of the family and far away from us as her parents, concluding from that that we don't exist. Now that would be bonkers. There's loads of evidence too that points in completely the opposite direction. You know, I've been reading um, the book of Ecclesiastes in my quiet times, which I totally recommend to anyone who's got questions in this area. And the thing that really jumps out for you is just how obvious it is that if God doesn't exist and human beings are really the, the top of the spiritual food chain and we're all that is and life under the sun is all that there is, then most of the stuff that we think is worth living for is really meaningless. So in Ecclesiastes 2, we find out that if there isn't a God, there isn't any ultimate difference between bad actions and good actions. There's no difference between wise actions and stupid actions. And some people will make a really big effort to defend that intellectually. But the trouble is, the truth, if we will only open our eyes to that, is however good your intellectual defense of that is, no one can live that practically. Even atheists live as if goodness and wisdom were really the better way. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us what happened to him when he tried to really live this out, to live out the idea that the world has no value and that his legacy was all that he would leave behind. And we need to hear this. Solomon, bright man, was left believing or left with just with this desperate, restless sense of dissatisfaction. He ended up believing that it would be better to die than to live. And that should make us just pause a minute and think, hold on a minute, there's something really badly messed up with that perspective, if it leaves you interpreting the world in such a way that you just think the whole thing would be better off if it just went away. Solomon ended up longing for some kind of ultimate accounting. He couldn't shake off this desire to see the wrongs of the world righted. And that's what my dad wants too. And that's what we want too, isn't it? But we need to see that that desire itself is irrational if there's nothing beyond ourselves to say what's wrong and what's right. And even if it was rational, to exist without a God. That desire is a problem because history shows us that no human has ever had the power to actually deliver it. So what we find when we try to run with this whole God is just not speaking clearly enough way of thinking is that God is actually really shouting to us at the top of his voice. We're made in such a way that we cannot tolerate a world in which there isn't any value or purpose to life. And we need to listen to that intolerance. It's significant. See, if you push my head underwater, my body cannot tolerate that. And my, my, my body fights for breath because it knows that air exists. And just the same way, if you push my head under spiritual water and you tell me that there's no ultimate significance to any of my actions and choices, my soul fights for breath because it knows that God exists. And just like it was in Paul's time, our own songwriters and poets and authors are reflecting this stuff all the time. 
even though many of them aren't Christians. You know, I've been thinking about this recently. Um, I read Marcel Proust's massive novel um, uh, in remembrance of things past. And near the end of that, he has this amazing quote, which is a bit complicated, but I'll read it to you. Um, He wasn't a Christian, but listen to what he says. He said that these obligations that we all feel, these urges to do the right thing, they have no sanction in our present life. They seem to belong to a different world, a world based on kindness, scrupulousness, and self-sacrifice, a world that's entirely different from this one, which we leave in order to be born on this earth before perhaps returning there to live once again beneath the sway of those unknown laws, which we obey because we bear them on our hearts, not knowing whose hand had traced them there. Isn't that striking, just reaching out for the idea that there's someone or something beyond us that placed us here? We all have that in our hearts. And that was the conclusion that the Athenian poets came to. They didn't deny God's existence. They concluded that we are actually God's children. And that brings us right back to the place where we were at the start. You see, Paul argues that if that's true, there's no point making images to try to control the world around us. If we are God's offspring, we are designed to be his image, not to be making images to replace him. And the question that we really have to ask ourselves is what is God going to do with the fact that we've totally abdicated that responsibility to be the image he intends? Paul has a pretty clear vision of what the answer to that question looks like. He tells us that we need to repent because God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And Jesus coming as a judge can mean one of two things in the light of this. It could be dreadful. He could face you and ask, what have you done with my image? And we'll say, well, we passed it out to these things that we trusted in to control the future. And he might ask us why. And we might be bold enough to say, well, I didn't think that you made yourself clear enough. I didn't have the confidence in you that you could really control this whole world that you actually made. And you can imagine how hollow that's going to sound when we stand before him and we finally realize that he made every atom in our bodies and that he has mercifully, all through our lives, been holding us out of reach of the true chaos that our sin would just suck us down into in an instant if it wasn't for his mercy. But it could go the other way. We could stand before him as someone who at some point along our journey, and maybe even right here this morning, said to him, I surrender. I give up. I recognize that these idols that I've been clinging to in my life and moving from idol to idol to idol are not delivering what they promise. And I don't know how to get out of it, but I so desperately wish that I could. I repent. I give up. And it may be a long time after that when we actually meet him. But when we do, he will say to us, I bless my father for you because you bear the image And it's funny, I've been picturing that and thinking, well, what would I say? And I think, honestly, I'd say, Jesus, you know, I'm not sure I really do, or at least not very well. You know, look at the bad job that I've been doing in my life. But then I imagine him holding up a mirror and saying, look, Neil, this is how I've seen you since the day you put your trust in me, clothed in all of my achievements, bearing the image well because I bore it well representing the father well because I represented him well. And we'll look and see 
all of those images and idols, all that infestation of our hearts swept away. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Jesus, our hearts long to see that redeeming work. God, we long that you would just strip out from us all of these images that we make. And God, I repent, we repent of the things that even now, even this morning, we woke up thinking about that aren't you. All the things that we've put our trust in that can never deliver the loving care and control that only you have got the power to give us. Jesus, would you please work in our hearts? Would you please draw us to you? Would you clean us out? Would you give us the image? Because you are the image. Would you clothe us in all your righteousness that we might stand and give you the praise that you deserve? Amen. We have communion now. For anyone who would like to take it in response to that message, do just come forward as the band are playing and use that in the way that seems appropriate for you.